Now you talk about terror. Welcome to another podcast from the Chris Hedges Report. I'm Chris Hedges, and you can find more of my work at chrishedges.substack.com. All my day. I was first introduced to the idea of political poetry on October 18, 1970, about midnight, in an all-night Harvard Square corner bookstore, Doug Rawlings writes. A few months before that encounter, I'd returned from the war in Vietnam. To say that I was confused and angry is an understatement. I was also somewhat lost. Then, on that fateful night, I found this wonderful collection of poems by Denise Levertov that captured her journey to North Vietnam as a peace activist. This was the first serious discussion I had read from and about my war. And true to what Robert Bly considers effective political poetry, Levertov used the personal to open up the universal. I was captured, and unlike my response to military service, I did not want to escape. Instead, I sought out more of her work and other poets and eventually began to write my own poems. Rawlings, who recently made his first trip to Vietnam since he was there as a soldier, has been haunted throughout his life by the war. The images from the war do not go away. The bodies, the carnage, faces, the children, the smells, the concussions, all are present. These images make their way into his poems. Rawlings, who was one of several co-founders of Veterans for Peace, which today claims thousands of members and 130 chapters worldwide, has spent his life trying to convey the horror of war and atone for the crimes we committed against the Vietnamese people. Joining me to discuss the war, its aftermath, and his return to Vietnam after 53 years is Doug Rawlings, who is a retired professor of English from the University of Maine Farmington. Uh, Let's just run through the experience you had in Vietnam because it's something you've been grappling with for a lifetime. Well, you know, I was part of that package, if you will. It happened, you know, the end of 68 and beginning of 69 when things were going horribly for the United States military. So I was literally drafted out of graduate school, eight weeks basic training, eight weeks AIT down at Fort Sill and and artillery, a two-week leave, and then bam, Vietnam. and uh, and back in those days, of course, we didn't go with a unit. So when I landed in Tonsonut Air Force Base um, in July of 69, I didn't know anybody. I was totally alone. Uh, and, you know, like, of course, they do the usual military shuffle back and forth and get on a chopper, do this, that, and everything else. And I ended up at this landing zone uh, in the Central Highlands um, with the 173rd Airborne. And then after about five months there, we moved further north and built a fire base to support the 173rd. So I was in a place where um, our great fear was the uh, NLF, uh, the so-called Viet Cong. Uh, and uh, we were at the fire base. We had four howitzers uh, to support the 173rd, and we were mortared, and sappers came at us and various things like that throughout the 13 and a half months I spent there, 411, 411 days or or 822 nights, if you will, because it was the nights that we were terrified. <laughs> we were really uh, very worried. Talk about the experiences there that most affected you. Well, um, the, well, I, I, you know, beyond the uh, obvious thing of, of uh, living with the no- knowledge that uh, someone was trying to kill you the whole time you were there, right? 
I mean, that, that wires you in a certain way. But what we did, uh, myself and three other guys, after about eight months in country, nine months in country, we decided to go into the village of Bongshan. And so everything was off limits, of course. We're in this fire base with our concertina wire and all that stuff. Uh, and we went to the to the village and, and and we took off our helmets and flak jackets and stacked our weapons and let somebody watch them. And we walked into the village uh, and engaged with the people. And they were just stunned by that, you know, seeing four soldiers without weapons and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that that really moved me. Um, obviously, it was the only people that, who were there were uh, uh, women and old men and a couple of, and little kids. Uh, people our age, they were not to be found at all. So that was that. I think that was that the overwhelming experience for me that um, engaging with these people as human beings, as opposed to you know dehumanized objects of war, probably was the most moving experience for me. I know you've written about the face, faces of the children, uh, the way they looked at you. Yeah. Um, I've got some pictures of them. My friend took some pictures and I took some pictures. But I, there are a few. For example, uh, there was this uh, Vietnamese girl. She might have been 10, 11 years old. Um, she was, uh, we called her Little Butterfly. And she sold us dope. Uh, and, and also prostitutes. Okay. And so I didn't have kids at the time when I was there. When I came back and started raising a family, I realized what we had done to that poor girl. Uh, we had just destroyed her childhood because she was doing that kind of stuff just to survive. Uh, and that really got me. That really stays with me. Uh, it's what we did to the children more than anything else that, that bothers me the most, quite frankly. I think anybody who's been to war, myself included, what's most devastating is what's done to the children. Yeah. And that's what that's what struck me when I... Went back this time for this conference that I went to. I went back with my son. And uh, the opening moment of the conference, these young uh, Vietnamese uh, you know, girls and boys, I don't know, 15, 16-year-old, got, got up on the stage and started singing. And with beautiful, just beautiful animation, beautiful. And I just lost it because, I, mm. you know, I, I hadn't seen those that kind of those children, Vietnamese children, ever. And all of a sudden, there they were, right there, and, you know, engaged with life and just really ha having a wonderful experience. And I was just blown away by that. Artillery you kill from a distance. It's different from being in a firefight. It is a difference. It's uh, more abstract. Uh, talk about that difference. Well, you know, the guys would, uh, 173rd guys would go out uh, and uh, leave the wire and go out and and engage, and if they they needed our help, they'd call an artillery, and then they'd come back in, right? And uh, it was difficult dealing with them and talking to them. Um, the, the range of the howitzers we had, we had uh, eight inches and 175s, which were, you know, large, large weapons. So you're right, I didn't see any of that firsthand. Um, I got well, that we should be clear, Doug, a 175, describe it, it's a very large weapon. It's a very large howitzer, right? You know, it's got a round range probably of about 20 kilometers, I would think. Um, and the eight inches were even larger. Um, and they had a range of about 10, 15 kilometers probably. And you're talking about massive shells, very large yeah, shells. Yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and the thing, that, one of the things that really got me, I could understand when, they, when we were, the coordinates were called in to, to assist the infantry and stuff like that. But more often, uh, uh, more times than I care to admit, they did what they called H&I, which is harassment and interdiction. They would just sporadically 
fire off these rounds just to keep them on their toes, quote unquote, right? Uh, and you know, if you just stop for a second and think, they're not even aiming at a, at a military target, if you will. These things are coming in God knows where. So, yeah. Uh, how quickly did you realize the war was an atrocity? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, prob probably, um, I, I, I like to refer to myself as, as a spoiled white male coming out of a college experience and stuff like that. I had no idea what the military was involved in and stuff. And so I was amoral, if you will, not even really aware of, other than the fact that I'm from Rochester, New York, and we used to go. I used to go back home from Cleveland where I went to school, and I'd bump into guys I went to high school with who were coming back from Nam, and they were really messed up, and you know. But I didn't. That, that didn't register with me at all. Um, so you know, I kept a journal while I was over there, and I and I was writing on, actually on the plane, uh, flying you know from the United States to Vietnam, my concerns, uh, my worries, if you will. Uh, and, you know, uh, I was literally, I literally, it's honestly got truth because I've got this written in my journal, so it's got to be true, right? Um, I was reading John Paul Sartre's book on genocide on the plane uh, over to uh, Vietnam. So I knew, intellectually, mm. I knew this is wrong. But when I was actually there, uh, it really got me viscerally. It really, really struck home. And and I quickly got out of that notion they like to give you in the military that you know you're going to become a man that kind of stuff, uh, like you're playing in your own little sandbox uh, and and not affecting anybody. Well, I saw the impact we were having on the villagers. Um, I saw young American men uh, who were probably decent human beings um, turned into sociopaths, if you will, and some perhaps even psychopaths. Um, and you know, and I just saw this thing, you know unraveling in front of me uh, and so i got angrier and angrier and angrier um and you know i i was uh, they tried to give me an article 15 in the military which is a reduction in rank for doing this horrible thing which was engaging with the vietnamese people this is when you went into the village no actually uh this we we're at this fire base and these these majors would show up to make rank right to get in the combat zones and stuff and we these young punks if you will a lot of them were i have friends who are officers now but back then it was like you know Forget it. And this one guy showed up and I've been in country, you know, I don't know, seven months or whatever. And he all of a sudden decided that we were not going to talk to the to the villagers who came to the wire. Like I mentioned, the young girls selling us drugs and prostitutes and stuff like that. But they would villagers would come to the wire and just start trying to engage with us and stuff. And so this guy said, no way. You, you guys are buying dope. Oh, forget it. And I just looked at him and I said, you know, screw you. And I walked to the wire and started talking to him. And of course, he wrote me up an article 15. Um, which was a reduction in rank, you know, and, and who knows what else. Uh, and uh, he, But he didn't know who he was dealing with. Uh, I'm not bragging or anything, but I'm a college student, right? I kind of figured out things. I knew how to write. So I wrote up my defense and I flew into Phuket Air Force Base, which was, you know, I don't know, 50 kilometers from where we were. And they had an adjutant general's office there. And I presented my case. Uh, my case basically was, you guys gave us a card that says your job is to, to win hearts and minds. How can we win hearts and minds if we're not allowed to communicate with the Vietnamese, which was my argument? And I won, sort of. <laughs> I, I won and I beat that Article 15. I, I ended up burning a lot of shit. <laughs> when I, this guy really hated me after that. I mean, he went, he fought everything he could do to make my life miserable after that. But uh, anyways, it was that kind of resistance, right? And, and there was moments uh, 
when you know people you know we we would defy orders which you're not supposed to do in the military right you know we'd have these guys tell us okay we want you to drive to wherever take your deuce and a half and go to wherever you know and we do some quick calculations and said you know sir uh, mm, uh, if we do that we're going to be coming back at night and there's no way in hell we we're going to drive down those roads at night and you know then they would find some way to sound like they were still in authority but they would they'd listen to us because we were not going to do it so what did you learn about the military what did you learn about war and what did you learn about yourself <laughs> how much time you got <laughs> i learned about the military to me i like to think okay i had i was an economics major and i was working on my mba and my dad was a, a was an executive at eastman kodak and i was heading into the corporate world until i was drafted and the military showed me exactly what how a bureaucracy really really works right which is authority figures dictating your lives, treating you like assets, literally, as they called us. And I said, there's no way in hell I'm going to go back into a bureaucracy like that. So the military taught me that. Um, I learned about war was, you know, as, as I made reference to earlier, it's it's more than just a personal journey, right? It's there's the, 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 the impact on other people is immense. And, and it's not, it's almost, as you well know, from your experiences, it's almost impossible to capture it totally uh, in words and, and even in images uh, because there's so many other factors, the smells and the sounds right. and stuff like that. Uh, and it's an overwhelming experience. I really, I, I kind of thought of myself, I was going to be like, a, you know, a, a Norman Mailer or an Ernest Hemingway, right? I was going to write from this, about this experience from an objective stance, from a distance, if you will. No, uh, it, it, it engages you entirely, 100%. And I did stuff that I would probably, you know, I just uh, didn't think I would do. Uh, and so war impacted me like that. And I came back incredibly angry. I, I spent uh, an extra 34 days there, which were the longest days of my life, quite frankly, because I discovered that if I came back stateside with less than six months of active duty, I could get out of the military. So I literally spent the shortest possible time you could in the military. I came back one day less than six months. So I knew that I could not in any way function stateside in a military base. I was so angry. I was so disgusted uh, with this uniform uh, and stuff. So, you know, um, I, I learned that, I guess, about myself. And then I, you know, I, I, I dabbled with joining with the VVAW in Boston. I moved up to Boston really quickly. Uh, but sort of, then I joined the Socialist Workers Party because they were really uh, uh, militant and they were organized and they had some good stuff going on. Uh, because I was trying to give my voice somehow to the peace movement. And this was early on. Uh, uh, so, you know, that's sort of changed everything I looked at from then on. I, I decided to become a high school English teacher because I wanted to work with young people and, and not preach to them, but in, in a sense, direct them in another way from the way the recruiters were trying to, to convince them to go. So my life was totally changed, obviously. Let's have you read one of your poems. Let's begin with Unexploded Ordinance to Ballad. Okay, unexploded ordinance bell. I wrote this for Chuck Searcy, who's a founder member of, and I met with him when I was in Vietnam of Project Renew, which is dedicated to re uh, removing unexploded unexploded ordinance from the villages. Uh, there are kids. This fifty years later, there's still kids having their legs blown off and arms blown off by these cluster munitions, if you will, uh, that were dropped off. Uh, so, as an artillery person, I felt a sort of a real personal. Um, um, Guilt, if you will, the unexploded ordinance. So here's the ballad. 
So I was maybe all 21 when they whipped me into some kind of soulless shape. Yet another one of America's weeping mother's sons set forth into this world to raise, pillage, and rape. And now it's coming on to another Christmas Eve and songs of joy and peace fill up our little town. How, I asked myself, could I possibly believe I could do what I did and not reap what I had sown? In that land far away from what I call home, a grandfather leads his granddaughter by the hand into a field where we did what had to be done. They trip into a searing heat, brighter than a thousand suns. Use the word rape. Uh, women are always collateral in war. Prostitution, war creates prostituted women, perhaps only in, in greater numbers or corpses created. Let's talk about that aspect of war because it's not often talked about. There were brothels set up, prostitution was rife. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of my first experiences when I was there, there I didn't know what, what was going on. I was one of these greenies and I was, these guys loaded into a deuce and a half and had me drive the, the truck. And they said, stop here and wait for us. And we went to this little village and they went in and uh, they were engaging with what they call prostitutes. And I saw some, you know, I just sitting there looking and I saw some of these girls come out of the thing and they were like 16, I don't know, they were young teenage girls, right? And these guys called them whores, right? And and I just, what what the hell? And I realized that was that was actually going on. But you know, when I use the word rape in that in that poem, I go beyond just women. I'm talking about raping the environment. I'm talking about, you know, raping our minds, raping us, if you will. Uh, it's, you know, oftentimes it's, you know, I I, be, I have to be very careful in making this illusion, but I still kind of make it on occasion. And so, you know, in a sense, when, those of us who were drafted, drafted were in a sense raped. Um, you know, the government didn't care about us at all. They wanted our bodies. They wanted to use us. Uh, and then they wanted to get discard us when we were done, uh, when they were done with with us. Right. Um, so I'm sort of trying to capture that that notion as well. But the, the whole idea of, of prostitution was prevalent throughout that war. Uh, and you're right. And there were brothels. All this. I was never in a city the whole time I was there. I was pretty much in this little village and outside this village the whole time I was there. Um, except when I went on R and R to Australia, but uh, it was it was there. It was just women were just uh, you know, as you know, it's the old cliche. They were just you know, part of the war. You know, when we took advantage of that. Let's read the girl in the picture. The girl in the picture comes from the famous uh, picture of Fanti uh, Kim Fook. Most of us in our generation know that picture, right? When you say the girl, and I, when I say the girl in the picture to people from my generation, they know immediately the picture I'm talking about. Yeah, that was first published in Ramparts by Bob Shear. And it became, for me, and for many of us, it became an iconic picture of the realities of that war. So I, I, I wrote this picture, I wrote this poem, the girl in the picture, but I like to tell people I wrote it. I began writing this poem as a poem of um, about suicide. Uh, you know, and I like to tell my 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 kids and my loved ones, you know, not all poetry is autobiographical, right? Doesn't mean the old man's gonna commit suicide tomorrow. But I was trying, I was grappling with this notion of suicide. And and what we used to call in the Vietnam War single car suicide. Uh, a lot of guys would you'd find guys dead alongside of the road, no alcohol involved at all, just smashed their cars into a tree at going 70 miles an hour, right? And and the, and they're non-vets. And we say that's suicide. VA didn't say so. So, anyways, I'm writing this poem, uh, and I just happened to pick up a, a magazine dealing with that picture. And in that magazine article, they, they said that Kim was nine years old when that picture was taken. Well, when I was writing this poem, 
my oldest granddaughter was nine years old. And that changed the whole poem. So here it is. Called The Girl in the Picture. And I begin it with an aphorism, a Buddhist aphorism. Whatever you run from becomes your shadow. The girl in the picture, whatever you run from, becomes your shadow. If you're a non-vet, a survivor of sorts, she'll come for you across the decades, casting a shadow in the dying light of your dreams, naked and nine, terror in her eyes. Of course, you'll have to ignore her if you wish to survive over the years, but then your daughters will turn nine, and then your granddaughter's nine as the shadows lengthen. So you'll have no choice on that one night screaming down the ridge road, lights off, under a full moon. She's standing in the middle of the road, still naked and nine, terror in her eyes. Now you must stop to pick her up, to carry her back home to where she came from, to that gentle village where the forgiving and the forgiven gather at high noon. There are no shadows. That's beautiful. Well, let's talk so I consider, about... I'm sorry. Hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, I consider it a poem of remorse. And I, and I say I have no right, and when I went back to Vietnam, I, I, I felt this 100%. I have no right to ask the Vietnamese people for to forgive me for what I did, um, for being part a participant in that war. If they do forgive us, uh, we it's wonderful. I, we accept it graciously and wonderfully, but I have no right to ask for that. So in a sense, what I was writing about was that whole notion of Somehow, can I can I put my life together or engage with the Vietnamese people in some way um, that they could offer me some forgiveness? So that's at the heart of that poem, I think. Let's talk just briefly about your readjustment following the war, um, and then your return. You went back with your son. Fifty three years, you're back in Vietnam. I. I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Carl Jung's notion of synchronicity, of things happening. There's no such thing as a coincidence. Things happen in a certain way. So when I was in Vietnam, I started corresponding with this woman who I dated in college. Uh, and as it went along, I finally said, hey, you want to meet me when I get out of the Army? And she said, sure. So she met me in San Francisco when I processed out. Uh, and what we did then, uh, we went down to Los Angeles. And then this is 1970, of course, 71. Yeah, uh, we hitchhiked across the United States. Uh, a cop actually took us to the thing, and people from our generation don't realize this, but when you hitchhiked, you you, you got on this ramp, and there were like 10, 10 people lined up hitchhiking rides, and there we were. Uh, and took for three weeks, I was on the road before I even went home. Uh, you know, with with Judy. Uh, and by the way, I, Judy and I have been married fifty two years now. Okay. But she was there, right? And I was able to sort of start processing out this whole thing. You know, I like to tell people I, you know, didn't, you know, didn't, didn't tell anybody. I wasn't wearing a uniform or anything. But I'd get into a car, and the driver would look at me, and after about ten nanoseconds, say, "You a non vet? Yeah, yeah. How'd you know that? <laughs> well, guess what? So, but it was three weeks of that processing that out, and then I, we moved up to Boston. We didn't know anybody. I got a job in a hospital. You know, this I've got a degree now. I got an economics degree. I could have gotten a job. I could have gone to Eastman Kodak. But I got this thing, and I started just counting pills and filling bottles in this Coast Guard hospital for a year, getting involved in the anti-war movement as much as possible. Um, and we moved out to Seattle and got involved there and came back to Boston and got my degree and stuff. So I was processing that whole war in a sense, trying to um, distance myself from it. But at the same time, <clears throat> trying to use the experience in a positive way. Um, so then my life unfolds and whatnot. And, and, and in 1984, um, 
I'm a, I'm up here now in Farmington, Maine, uh, and we had this wonderful group. We still have Western Maine Peace Action Workshop, and we bring people in. And we brought <clears throat> we brought this couple uh, to speak to us about the Nicaragua War. This is 1984. Uh, Jerry and Judy Genacio, they were part of the Witness for Peace program. They'd gone to Nicaragua uh, as, as citizens, American citizens, uh, trying to intervene as much as possible. So they spoke to us about their experience. And at the end of it, Jerry, whose brother was killed in Vietnam, uh, and Jerry, who's a Marine, ex-Marine, said, I'm looking for some veterans who might want to form a peace group. Anybody interested? Yeah. Okay. So five of us here in Maine formed Veterans for Peace in 1985. And our and our whole mission is to abolish war. And we take this uh, pledge of nonviolence uh, as much as possible. Uh, and we try to make it as, as, the, as transparent and as open a group as possible. And as you alluded to earlier, we have 130 chapters now, six international chapters, NGO status, United Nations. So that's what I've been trying to do with my life, um, is trying to, to turn that experience that I've had uh, from a negative one into a positive one as much as possible. And I also, you know, uh, you, know you, you make reference to PTSD, which, you know, refer to and stuff like that. Um, but there, I, there's, there's a, a, a term out there now called moral injury, uh, which I think is much more comprehensive and, and engages me much more, which is basically if you're involved in something, it's either the perpetrator or the witness of something and you don't do something, you don't try to stop it from happening. Um, you're going to suffer from moral injury. And oftentimes you don't realize it until years later, decades later. And that's why I think a lot of guys my age who are, who are now vets are going through that moral injury thing. Like, oh my God, I really did do that. I really did that. You know, as fathers of children, ourselves and grandchildren, you know, we just, you know, it just, it's overwhelming sometimes to realize what we did uh, to, to the people. So, uh, so working with that, I'm trying to work on that. So, Let's read this poem. Uh, Vietnam redo going back for Josh, and then just in the last couple minutes, talk about what it meant to go back, or maybe talk a little bit for a minute about what it was like to go back and read. We'll end with a poem. Okay. Um, well, first off, I went back, and you know, so that's fifty-three years, and so I I went back as part of a conference um, for um, this book, "Waging Peace in Vietnam," Ron Carver's wonderful collection. And we were invited to speak at this conference, which is the uh, the Vietnam engaging again engaging uh, with Vietnam. It was all Vietnamese people put together this conference, and they asked us to be a, a participants in it to present a panel, if you will, because of the work that uh, Ron had been doing at the War Remnants Museum in Saigon or Ho Chi Minh City. Uh, and um, the director there, Dr. Juan, asked us to um, present at this conference. Uh, and so we did. And it was about, there were about 500 people at the conference, almost all of them Vietnamese, um, scholars and some college students and whatnot. Um, so that's why I went back. I didn't want to go back as a tourist, uh, although I did the tour kind of stuff. I wanted to present something. OK, um, so we did. We presented this panel. It was very well received. Uh, one wonderful experience I had was a guy who was a former Viet Cong attended it, you know, and we ended up hugging uh, because he, you know, he, he thanked us for telling the people about the fact that there really was a GI resistance movement. They're really members of the military, American military, who are trying to stop that war to help them to save their lives. And a lot of the young people, of course, were totally unaware of that. Um, so our conference did that. So I I did that and uh, I was smart enough. <clears throat> someone said to me, look at it, you're tender age. I'm 76, right? They said, you ought to bring somebody younger with you. Uh, and so I have a son and a daughter and I offered them, and my my daughter couldn't go, but my son could. He's forty six years old, right? 
and you know, and I, 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 I and my wife can attest to this. I spent a lot of my life not talking about the war uh, with my kids. I just didn't want to put that on them. But when Josh came with me, you know, it's a long flight, you know, and then we get there and I met guys who've been living there for years. Chuck Sierra had been living there 35 years. And there's another guy, David, 12 years. So Josh had to listen to us old war veterans swap war stories and stuff like that. And so he got a glimpse of the war from that perspective. But he also got a glimpse from the the, um, the Vietnamese perspective. And we traveled around. After the conference, we left the conference. And Chuck, who was a director of Project Renew, we flew to Dong Ha. We got a car. He has a driver. We drove to the DMZ. Uh, we drove to Da Nang. We drove to Khe Sanh. Um, we drove to uh, Dong Ha. Uh, and we're out in the roads, you know, and really engaging with the countryside. Uh, and my son was just really taken by it. He's an international traveler. And he said one thing, which I love, and then I'll read this poem, I guess. But he said, you know, he'd been to like Mexico. He was in Mexico a lot. And he said, you know, when you're in Mexico, it's sort of like you're always on edge because the people there are just trying to, you know, sell you something. He wandered around Huey, where the conference was in Hanoi uh, and stuff like that. And he said, I felt so peaceful, so safe the whole time I was there. I mean, in Hanoi's got 10 million people in it, for God's sakes, right? It's a sprawling city. Uh, and he said, the Vietnamese people were just so amazing. Uh, anyways, so here's a poem called uh, Vietnam Redux. Uh, I wrote it for my son, Josh. I look twice now where I used to look only once, like where routes two and four merge with route 156. Or when my imagination takes me to a little village just on the other side of the river Styx. Where there truly was hell to pay those many years ago, across that river and up and down those swirling tides, where Beelzebub got to play with his gift box of G.I. Joes as we desperately hung on for his satanic little ride. I went back to that land of my 50-year-old dreams, thinking I'd finally put some nightmares out to pasture, hoping to quiet down those mama-san beetle-mouth screams, looking for that proverbial sense of closure. But who am I? to expect more from this madly tortured land that once swallowed up my illusions of masculine grandeur and spat out a soldier boy who had tried to become a man only to become a tool of that mindless, endless slaughter. So I still feel that way, right? I mean, as much as I'm trying, I have feelings of remorse and I'm trying to do stuff like that, I still ultimately feel, uh, and I cannot get away from the fact that I was in fact a tool of the military that did these horrible things. That was Doug Rawlings, retired professor of English from the University of Maine, Farmington, poet and Vietnam veteran. I want to thank the Real News Network and its production team, Cameron Granadino, Adam Coley, David Hepton, and Kayla Rivera. You can find me at chrisedges.substack.com. 